It's a Friday music show here in 1233 ABC Newcastle. Stephen Pickett joining me from the Eastern Acoustic Organisation to talk about, well, there's been a change of plans throughout the week, haven't there? You've prepared for every occasion, Steve. I have. I've multi-prepared. You have. All right, well, that's good because you've got the next few weeks' shows ready to go, haven't you? <laughs> Indeed. Um, but, but we're very fortunate today. We are. We are very fortunate because Alex Smith joins us right here in the studio from Moving Pictures, of course. Alex, I've got to ask, approximately how many people do you think have sung that song back to you? Oh, I've, no one's ever asked that question before. How many have sung it back? Because I, I listen to that, I play that, and in my mind, the images of thousands well, of if people. You, if you take, yeah, well, if you take into account some of the things like Narara and... And the really big outdoor shows we used to do, like at Brookvale Oval and Castle Hill Showground and things like that, it must you'd be you'd be getting up somewhere, I reckon, well, well, well over probably around three quarters of a million people probably over the years. Have all sung back to you. Yeah, that's that's kinda lovely, isn't it? It it is, I tell you, it's um there's 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 a catalytic moment and you you look out and all these eyes are just looking at you and all these faces with their mouths open just singing. <laughs> no, oh, no. I, 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 look, it's all right. It's all right. What about me, Alex? <laughs> yeah. Well, well it's, shh, shh, shh. it's fine, Petal. Okay. It's fine. It's you fine. sure? Yeah. It's mm. just a great moment. It must be amazing. Lots of interviews with different artists over the years and every now and then you will find somebody who's had a huge... Song like that, mm. something that has changed lives for people, yeah. travelled through people's. It's part of their mm. own soundtrack to their life. Yeah, their growing up experience. But they yeah. don't want to own it anymore. They're so over it and they're so wounded <laughs> by it and they're so sick of it. Not mentioning any names, James Ray. No, well, it's like something you do. I mean, I'm grateful to those people. You know, I was I was just talking to Steve off air before we came in. Because you guys haven't seen each other for 30 years, you were saying. Like 20 odd 20, years. 20, <laughs> 20, 20, 20, 20, yeah. 20. But it's like, <clears throat> you know, there was a time when it was on the radio like every 10 seconds. Yeah, I know, if I, I was, played it. If I was driving in my car, I go, because mm. oh, there, there was sort of like a two-pronged thing with that, you know, being sick of the sound of your own voice for one and thinking it, it's some form of like real narcissism to be sitting here listening to myself all the time, you know. But every night... When you get on stage hmm. and it comes to that, that's, that's what it was about, you know, is that moment of, of connection, which is really absolutely wonderful. Yeah. See, if I had a dollar for every time I'd had to play it. You'd have a few dollars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you were in the studio with, uh, with Charles Fisher, did you know? It was a weird one because we, it wasn't actually one of the songs we demoed for the album. Was that at Trafalgar? Some of it was recorded at Trafalgar, some of it at the Music Farm and some mm. of it at uh, Studio 301 in Castle Ray Street when mm. it used to be there. And we'd been up at the Music Farm sort of running down the rhythm tracks and things like that. And uh, it was Charles Fisher's birthday and we all got rat-faced and we were sitting around in the studio and Gary went over to the piano and just started to play the piano and I started to sing it and Charles sort of looked up and said, what the hell's that? Oh, okay, so that's the song I've been working on. And uh, he said, well, let's record it. So we went back uh, to Studio 301 and did most of that there. And everything about that track was kind of like serendipitous that nobody – we didn't plan on timpanis. 
There had been an orche- <laughs> there'd been an orchestral session in there earlier in the day, and the hire company hadn't arrived to pick up the timpanis, <laughs> and they were sitting in the corner. And Charlie Cole, the keyboard player, knew how to play timpanis, and he was just standing there playing around, going, "Guys, listen to this!" Blum, 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 blum. And Charles Fisher went, "I've got an idea." So the timpanis went on, and it just sort of went. And the guide, and most of what you hear on that is a guide vocal because they'd just been tracking the strings on it and uh, Charles said, oh, you want to run out and do a guide vocal? And I said, yeah, you, can I just play around with it and do what I feel with it? And he said, mm. yeah, go for it. So, Alex Smith, you haven't actually finished that song yet? Never. No, one of these days I'll get in and do it so that I stop getting tardy work on my report card. <laughs> Did you get to hear Shannon Knowles' version? Yeah, but... I- only when I came back to Australia. I mean, I actually did a gig with Shannon the other night. We, there was a concert for Variety at the Enmore Theatre on Monday night, and I sang it with him, which was oh, great. Oh, that's pretty cool, because he, he did a tidy, tidy version. Yeah, he's he? a lovely bloke. Yeah. He's just too tall. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, well, you're up there. Good boy. All right, hang on. Back to Steve's question for you, though, Alex. When did it become apparent to you that What About Me was going to be something a bit special. Well, we released Bust and Loose as the first single, and that did really well. And then the album came out um, in late October of 81. And, um, but people were already, some radio stations were already starting to play What About off the album. Hmm. It, wasn't, it wasn't even a single. And the crowds were starting to sing it back. You know, it was the crowds that started doing that. Hmm. You know, it wasn't, that hmm. wasn't in the game plan. And kept being, they kept requesting it and yelling out for it and stuff. And by the time it was released in the February of 82, there was such a huge groundswell for it that um, it just sort of raced straight up to number one. And we, I mean, literally, we, we did Countdown on the Friday because um, that's when it used, you used to record on a Friday afternoon. Hmm. And it would be broad, then they'd have an editing time period before it was broadcast on the Sunday. And Monday morning, walking down the street in Melbourne, I, I couldn't get anywhere. I was just being sort of mobbed by people. It was very, very weird. Wow. Yeah. That, you know, and within a week, I think, it went almost straight up to number one. And as did the album. Yeah. Well, the album was already doing well. I mean, we were really, you know, when, you know, we're sort of relatively unknown band from Sydney and we put out uh, the album. And, but we'd done so much work. It just... And we played to a lot of people and we'd just done the Australian Crawl Ports of Call Crawl Tour mm. and uh, it was just great, you know. Northern was, Beaches kids. Yeah, mostly, mostly. Mess of trouble. Yeah, how terrible. Absolutely uh-huh. shocking. We shouldn't be allowed out in polite society. Hey. <laughs> well, I think there's three of us here, isn't there? So 1981, I'm in high school and this is on the radio.
stars had been bright And she let him go all the way Said it was different that time Cause she said, take your time Slow down and let me show you the way Well, the sand was warm Underneath where they lay Cool breeze made the waves dance and play A band played in the hall They were loud, it was small But who listened anyway? And every guy is a clumsy poet And every girl's a beauty queen But they're so caught up in appearances That they don't really know what they mean Friday Music Show here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. 17 past two with Carol Duncan, Stephen Pickett co-hosting me with me this week and our special guest, Alex Smith from Moving Pictures. Now, 1981, I was my last year of high school and I guess we that appealed, that song, Alex, because of the somewhat adult themes. Yeah, well, I mean... In part of it. I was When I wrote that song, I was about 18 or 19 and sort of just trying to encapsulate the sort of suburban scene in Sydney at that time and, you know, panel vans played a big part of it. Um, and we just, everybody went out looking for a good time and trying to appear to be older than they were and getting into all sorts of trouble. Mm. But that's what we, that was the music. I actually, I was saying to you that um, I would, I would, I'd gone back to live at my parents' place for a little while and I was mowing the lawn and suddenly, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good feel. And I sort of ran back inside and grabbed a piece of paper and wrote the song. But it was great. Inspired by mowing your folks in yeah, the lawn? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, inspired by the old Victor. Okay. Was that mowing the lawn here in Newcastle? No, that was in Sydney. Okay. Because you're a Novocastrian. I did I not am, know this. I How did an, I not know this? I don't know. I thought it was common knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> no. I am a Novocastrian. Born in the Newcastle Hospital. It's gone now. Has it? Mm. I haven't been down that end of Hunter Street. I must go. Seriously? Well, no, I only just arrived last night. I know you live in the UK these days. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Oh, it's a nice town now. I know. Well, I found it funny last time when I came and I took took a walk up to Nobby's and I looked back and the beast is gone. Mm. It's sort of still odd, isn't it? It's very odd. There's this flat space where there used to be belching furnaces and, um, you know, the dark satanic mills. How old were you when the family packed up and went to Sydney? Uh, I was nine. Okay. And um, my father had been working at the BHP since 1955. And uh, then he got offered a job with Caltex, which is based in Sydney. So we, we moved down there. You know how I know you're a local? How do you do that? You said the BHP. Yes, right. Yeah. The beast. The BHP. I remember my dad, some night, when, when they opened Blast Furnace Number 4, and uh, we went up and we stood at the top of Black Butt Reserve at yeah. night yeah. just to watch the flames, you know, <laughs> and you could hear it. Coming up the bowl, coming up the bowl of the hill, it was really amazing. He used to call it the beast. Listen, if you shut up for a while, you can hear the beast breathe. <laughs> All right. So it's nineteen eighty-one. Mm-hmm. You're how old? Eighteen-ish? No, no, nineteen eighty-one. I was about twenty-one, twenty-two. Okay, so still a pup, and oh, you yeah. have this huge thing happen to you. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a few th- huge things in my life, but we won't bring um, those um, into conversation. Um, certainly there are, and we'll probably get SMSs and uh, correspondence about that a little later on. But just a pup, and you have this huge hit on your hands. Yeah, but um, I always say, you know, we worked for that. We worked bloody hard um, from the time we, uh, we put the band formed in 1980, and we used to average, you know, 250, 300 gigs a year. I mean, bands don't do that anymore from what I've, I've seen of the world now. But we used to go to, you know, go down to Melbourne and do 10 or 12 gigs in seven days and, mm. and all that sort of stuff. You just worked really hard. And mm. we built up crowds. You know, we started out playing to like one man and his dog. And then the next time you'd come, there'd be three men and their dog. And then word of mouth would spread. I mean, we used to come up here and do, you know, three or four set nights at the Bass and all that sort of thing. And it was great. It mm. was good fun. And for us as punters as well, I guess, Stephen, this has been, you know, where you've been working for the last 20 or 30 years as well in bringing musicians to us. I think the first time I saw you it was, was ex- at the best. Incredible. Yeah, the ambassador. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the Northern Beaches at that time, the history says that 
Midnight Oil, In Excess, Ice mm. House, all of those guys were working the northern beaches. Yeah, you, yeah. Was the Venu- venues like Avalon RSL, the Narrabeen Antler, Matt Bryce's Manly Vale Hotel, um, DY Hotel, all that. There was a really strong base there and people used to come you know people like to live put up that big thing about sydney being really divided up you know you got your westies and you got your north shores and yourself but it's not really like that i mean people were coming from all over the town to see things tuesday night i mean the midnight oil used to pack the narrabeen antler on a tuesday night Mm. you know there'd be 1200 people there and then they'd head over and do the comb and cutter exactly Mm. that it was a different scene then and very vibrant but audiences you know the punters the kids they travelled. They were prepared to travel to go and see bands play. And, you know, and I think a lot of times, you know, venue operators and promoters turned a blind eye to health and safety regs and fire regs and hmm. and things just happened, you know. Also, the, you know, places like the San Miguel oh, were just incredible. Yes. You know, they kicked ass. You know, the first time I ever got asked for ID was on the night of my 18th birthday. I was <laughs> disgusted. I was appalled. How dare they? And that was at uh, the rest in Milson's Point, I oh, think. Yeah. How dare they? Yeah. I'd been getting away with it for years. My kids aren't listening, are they? No, no, they're not listening. Alex Smith, our special guest on the Friday Music Show here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle with Steve Pickett joining me as well. Um, an extraordinary time. How, though, do you at 22 years of age have a huge hit like that and stay half sane? Well, you didn't. Oh, fair enough. Okay, well, do tell. No, no, we, we all sort of, um, you know, was it William Blake, the... Um, Path of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. I think you've got to do it. You know, you get kind of uh, a little outrageous in your prime, and um, we were just sort of like take no take no prisoners. You know, it was what we did for that sort of two hours every night on stage was the paramount thing, hmm. and the rest of the, was just travelling together as this very tight knit unit. You know, you had the six of us and then the road crew and ah, it was like a little mobile army that just sort of used to rape and pillage and take no prisoners. Not everyone survived it, though. No, not in, in a lot of people um, didn't make it. But it was, it was, it was fun. You know, we just used to do things like you'd play at Bombay Rock in Melbourne, you'd finish at like 2 o'clock in the morning, then you'd get in the car and drive overnight back to Sydney so you could do another gig early evening in Sydney. Hmm. And, I, you know, we used to laugh that, the, you know, the, the tour promoters must have been just throwing darts into a big map, you know, where they have to be tomorrow. Okay, that'll do. And, um, but there was a bonding thing about it. There was a, a joy about doing it, just doing it, just being there. You know, it was the, wor- the best kind of sweat you could imagine. How did the band actually start? Were you a musical kid? Yeah, I was I was a musical kid. I I've mean, heard I, about the Bill Gola Bop Band. Yeah, yeah, well, that was a Northern Beaches institution. <laughs> yes, and do um, tell. Well, and Andy and I were in high school together at St Ives High School, and we met when we were about twelve. We had our first band together back then, and then after school we did different different things. I'm, and then Andy was playing with somebody, and I was playing with somebody, and then we ended up in this band called the Bill Gola Bop Band, and that's it. And they did. What it said on the tin, they used to play at the dancers at Bill Gola Surf Club. And then, but we did lots of other things. We played at places like the Lifesaver and um, Avalon RSL. And I mean, that was a, it was like this crazy sort of Grateful Dead situation. It was kind of like the last hippie entity on earth. And we really, I had really long hair and a beard and we just had a ball. Oh, but I've got to have a look now. But it was, but it was terribly exciting time. Uh, you know, to learn. We were playing, some of it was quite complex music for kids our age. We were doing Steely Dan and stuff like that. Yep. It was great. It was really good. And then the bot band finished and... Um, this Side Up. This Side Up, that's right, which was another sort of, that was like half jazz fusion, funk, soul, Stevie Wonder, Wilson Pickett, all that sort of thing. And then I'd started really writing songs, but I wanted, I had a sound in my head, but you know, I needed to find the players and um, one night a girlfriend of mine and some friends were going to see a band play in Sydney called The Great Dividing Band. And um, we went along and Charlie Cole, keyboard player, was playing in The Great Dividing Band and I poached him that night. I thought, I've got it. This is the guy who can do what I want. And then I rang Ian Lees, who I'd played in, a, in This Side Up with. I said, I found a keyboard player. He went, great, I'm in. I've got a drummer. I'll bring the drummer. And then Gary was a person I'd known through, through this same girlfriend. I thought he'd gone away fruit picking. 
I didn't know where he was. Then he turned up at the first rehearsal. He just turned up and we just played. And then Andy finished up his responsibilities to the other act he was with and he joined up and on the 4th of July 1980 we did our first gig. When What About Me soared Mm -hmm. and hit number one, what were the biggest changes in your life that that brought about? Lack of privacy. You, you know, suddenly you're in TV week every month. Um, You're on television every 10 seconds. Yep. You're being asked your opinion on everything from social welfare to politics to whatever, whatever. And you can't actually sort of go out the way you used to. You know, if you, if, if, if I wanted to take my then fiancé out for a quiet dinner, it was nearly impossible. Yep. Uh, if we wanted to go and go to Woolies and push a trolley up and down the aisles and do our shopping, it was hard. Um, you give up, you know, it's, it's a give and take thing. You give up some things. I, I sort of almost became reclusive when I wasn't working. Uh, I, I'm still a bit like that now. But you wouldn't change it? Not really. I would, ne- I would repeat those Hopefully not with the same mistakes, but I would repeat all those experiences uh, in a heartbeat. Hmm. See, my perception of you is that when you weren't working, you disappeared. Yeah, well, that's what I like to do. Hmm. Um, You know, people like Donnie Sutherland and and Molly and that always used to say the thing about me was I had an on switch. Hmm. You know, I'd turn up somewhere and it was like somebody turned me up. Well, that's right, because that was my job Hmm. was to do that bit. You know, perfectly happy to... You know, stay at home. I mean, at home in London now, I sort of like I've got my chickens, I've got the garden, I go out and do <laughs> go out and do the work I do. I've got my wife and kids, and everything's lovely. It's really nice. And I come back over here, and I'm, you know, I'm walking through the day I arrive here, back in Australia. I'm walking through the airport, and people are going, "Aren't you Alex Smith from Moving Pictures?" Oh, didn't you used to be? Didn't you used to be? Yeah, <laughs> it's like I like that question. Oh, it's great. Didn't you used to be? Yeah, but it's it's great. I mean. You, I, I can't actually stand, um, you know, in, say, the world of modern celebrity and all that kind of thing when people say, oh, I don't want this, oh, no, help me, there's someone with a camera. Hmm. You know, well, I'm sorry, get another job. Don't be a celebrity. Is the modern invasion of privacy, though, to the power of ten compared to what you went oh, through? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, my daughter's sitting over there in London following every single move I make. She's probably listening to this Hi. now, you know. That's, Hello over in London. Hey, Jesse. Hi, darling. It's, but that's the modern world. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were laughing, guys and I were laughing the other day uh, with the tour manager because he's a lot younger than us. You know, when we first started touring, um, there was no satellite TV. There were no mobile phones. You went, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, you went to a country town and everything shut at 11. Now you've got a worldwide connection of absolutely everybody. Which on the one hand is kind of nice, but do you know what else is nice? It's when the Gen Ys that work here, my producer's just gone for a little wander so I can say this now because he won't hear, is when they come and say things to, you know, someone like me, an esteemed elder, like, Carol, how do you clean a record? (laughs) Yeah, isn't that Well, let me show you. You, yes, indeed. Hmm. It's a funny thing. Um, I came back out in 2006 and did the countdown tour. Yep. And I was lucky enough to be able to bring my wife and children. Uh, they came out for a couple of weeks' holiday before that, before the madness started. And we were just in a little, in Kingscliff, a little beachside. Is your, your wife English-born? Yeah, she's English, yeah. Okay. But, and they, so in a sense, they know that this happened, but they don't, yeah. it's, it's not seeped into their skin as much. Yeah. And it's like... Um, so they know it, but they've not seen yeah, it in walking, de- walking into a restaurant in Kingscliff and people, you know, which and this is years and years and years and years and years after the events we're talking about, mm. people going, oh, my God, that's Alex Smith. <laughs> and my wife's going, what? <laughs> you're, you're wall. <laughs> you know, you're just wall. And I go, yeah, I know. But it was a big thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember going once with... Um, with Glenn Wheatley to the, see the Swans play in Sydney, and it was just bizarre. Oh, that's my phone going off my. Shh. In and, and lift it up to the microphone. What is Alex Smith's ringtone? That's not my phone. This is what is Mark Krastowski's son's phone. I don't know what the tune is. Ring in, and if you ring in, and can identify this tune? He's obviously a guitar nerd. You got him in one, yeah, yeah. James, James Krastowski. Yeah. 
He's a guitar nerd. <laughs> Nick, confiscate the phone, please. Oh, God, hang on. Confiscate Sorry about that, everybody. Being a bit of I'm a, on the air. Being a bit of a, a musical nerd, I've always wanted to ask you about the... 1982, it was early 1982, What About Me started to take yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really take off. Went ballistic in Australia. Mm-hmm. American interest. Yeah, well, it was. released over there, started to get hit about 60 and rising. Yeah, it got There to were like... tours booked with REO Speedwagon, mm-hmm. Tom Petty, um, Hall of Notes. Notes. Yeah. Yeah. They're... And then? Chipwreck. What happened? Um, we were assigned to a label called Network, and Network was distributed by Electra. And Electra is the E in W-E-A, mm. right? And they had a kind of uh, corporate meltdown. And a guy called Joe Smith, who was the president of Electra, was pushed out of the company by the board. But it's his company, right? So then, as they do in America, everything becomes unbelievable lawsuits. So Electra was effectively put on hold. It didn't exist. And so in the space of three days, nobody was actually pressing our album anymore. Mm. So we were like number 29 with a bullet and all this kind of stuff. We were number one in, at one stage, we were number one in 20 states simultaneously. And suddenly you couldn't buy the album anymore and there was no tour support. Mm. And this was like about three weeks before we were supposed to get on the plane. And Corporate start. meltdown. Corporate meltdown. And um, then it took the guy who owned Network another couple of years to reassess, because he had to, first of all, extricate himself from the Electra deal. Yep. And that was difficult if a company that doesn't, how do you extricate yourself from a company that doesn't exist? Hmm. You know, it's all paperwork. And by this time, things had, you know, run hot, run cold, run hot, run cold. And we had a couple of aborted attempts at, with American producers that the guy was sending over. And our relationship with him um, was faltering really badly and, you know, there were lawsuits flying around and he didn't want us to do this and we didn't want to do that. And, hey, Alex, when you get to America, we're going to put lifts in your shoes, we're going to fix your teeth, we'll get your proper haircut, make sure you go to a tanning salon and you'll be the biggest thing ever. (laughs) What about my voice? Oh, don't worry about that. You know, but anyway, we survived somehow. And then in the end, we thought, well, we've been sitting here on our backsides for a while still playing to great crowds of people who really liked the material we were writing and performing. And then mm. we thought, well, whatever the entity that is moving pictures, these people are going to say they own it. So let's just stop it. So we decided um, to finish up and get on with our lives. Alex Smith continues our conversation next here at 12.33.
Friday Music Show here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Carol Duncan with you this afternoon. Stephen Pickett co-hosting the Friday Music Show with me. Stephen, thank you very much for coming. It's always good when you come and visit. The Wicked Pickett. And Alex Smith from Moving Pictures. Hey, we were just talking about uh, performing then, 30 years ago, huge audiences, huge crowds, but Mm. also smaller ones, pubs and so on, and that rock circuit that Australia had uh, for so long. I wish we still had it was fun, wasn't it, Steve? Oh, it was great. It was one of the healthiest scenes in the world. I, I, in the early 80s, I went to Los Angeles and the, I looked in the gig guide and I was sitting there thinking, hell, there's more stuff happening in Sydney than there is here. Mm. And Melbourne too, you know, or you could go to Brisbane, you could go to Adelaide, Perth, and it was just such a healthy scene. It was, a, it was, it was something which fed itself. You know, we give the, give the bands places to play, the Bands bring the punters, then you get the next group of bands, and it kept going. Mm. It was really healthy. It was a fabulous. It wasn't always healthy for yourself. No, it wasn't good for you guys, but we had a great heap of fun. So, Alex, thanks very much for that. You were saying, though, just while we were listening to that song, that moving pictures weren't about an image. Uh, I don't think we, you know, I can't really speak for, for, for the other guys, but as individuals, we weren't that interested in being something else, you know, which is part of our fight with, with America. Um, I mean, I think they wanted to turn, turn us into poodle rockers, you know. Poodle rockers. But we just, um, you know, we kind of turned up pretty much in the clothes we walked down the street in. We, we, we were comfortable in our own skin, I think is a good way to, to say it. We, we wanted to just play the best music we could, play the music we wanted to play. I mean, we were writing this. Hmm. You know, we weren't writing music we didn't want to play. And we weren't going to write music that we didn't like that somebody else wanted us to play. Speaking of what you've written, the, um, se- the second album, After yep. Days of Innocence, was a matinee. Yep. You wrote a track on that called Back to the Blue- Booze and Blues. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was actually ri- that was written when I was about 18 or 19. And I just, you know, it was a broken heart. And uh, I used to have this, uh, my famous HR Holden station wagon, white one, and, you know, you'd be driving along and what you could hear in the, rat, the rattling of the um, sort of half scotch bottles in the back, the, in the back of the car. And, and in, in the end, you know, songwriting for a lot of people, and I know it has been for me a lot, is a very cathartic experience. And um, when you finally get the moments encapsulated and down on paper and the chords that, that make it work, it's a really lovely experience. And back to the blues and booze and blues. Yeah. Did, did that happen? Yes. Yeah. And you're Sorry, still here. Sorry, Maria, but it did. Yeah. You're still here to tell the story, though. I am. I'm alive, yeah. It's a good song. Mm. Is it your favourite to sing on stage? It's always been one of my favourites because I think when I was developing songwriting, it was one that I've, one of the first ones I sat back and I thought, wow, I have said so much in so, in so little. Because I think, I, I think talking to lots of songwriters out there, most of us start out writing, you know, Sad-Eyed Lady, The Lowlands 15 times, you know, <laughs> songs, songs taking up three fool's cap sheets of paper and wondering why people aren't, you know, kowtowing to your genius. Um, but Blues and Booze is, I think also like Sweet Cherie, um, Bust and Loose, it's a distillation of thought. 
Which is what a good song is in a lot yes, of but cases. It's, yes, and it's got a, it's got. A, I mean, take Sweet Cherie for example. When I first wrote that song, it was called Sweet Louise because there was a person called Louise. Mm. And then somebody pointed out to me, you know, this song's only going to be popular with people called Louise. And then I watch. I was watching. Um, Looney Tunes cartoons and Pepe Le Pew was on, oh, my sweet cherie. <laughs> Aha! That's where, it, that's where it came from. Yep. You got to. Oh, dear. Pepe Le Pew is your inspiration. You've got to be happy with that. Absolutely. Alex Smith, our special guest here at Friday music show here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Carol Duncan with you this afternoon. Stephen Pickett is my co-host this week and it's all about you, Alex Smith. It is all about me. It isn't fair. I've had <laughs> no, enough. you're here. You're here. You're here. You can do. You just butt in any time. Yeah. yeah. See, you can sing it right back any time you want, Steve. I don't think you want to hear me sing, especially next to this voice. Do you prefer writing by yourself or in collaboration with others? Um, I don't know whether I prefer... Any of it. I've, I've nearly always written on my own, but there are things like some of the songs, you know, Gary had the music and I had the words or we had bits and pieces. And, um, you know, some stuff when we've written at, sort of as a group, things were broken up. You know, Charlie and Ian would get bits and things. I did spend a bit of time after Moving Pictures finished. Um, I was living in Los Angeles and doing a lot of work songwriting for um, Universal and it, that was all about writing with other people. Hmm. At first I found it a bit strange and it was very formulaic, but it was by the end of it I was kind of sitting there going, yeah, I can do this. And, you know, I've got you know, certain skills which allow that to happen. But um, I think I much prefer running on my own. If, if, That's know, a really like, interesting thing. When you've had a, a huge success on your own and then you are writing songs for other people, that you have to send your little babies off into the wild mm. with somebody else. And yeah. not hang on to them and go, oh, no, I could do it better. But the funny thing was a lot of these people when I was, when I was in L.A., they'd say well, they would want to make a demo to send off to people. 
And I go, right, well, I'll sing. And they go, no. If you sing it, they're not going to want to sing it because it's just going to sound like you. We'll just get one of the session singers to come in and do it. Mm. And, I, you know, this struck me as so weird. But it's just how it went. Mm. When you went to the UK, you had a chance to work with the man from King Crimson, Uriah Heep and Asia, yeah. of course, John Wetton. What was that like, working with such a luminary? Oh, he's great. I mean, the, how I got onto him was they first of all put me in contact with Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music. Yep. So I did some writing with Phil at his studio, which was really, really lovely. And he sort of said, oh, look, old man, you should, you should wander. You should go and find John. You, you do know. that very well, you know. Yeah, well, I live there. And you should go and find John Wetton, you know. And so he gave me John's number and we rang up and we organised and sort of went down to his, his house. He was living in an area called Farnham <laughs> at the time. <laughs> And um, it was just really, really nice. I mean, he's such a, a gifted musician. You know, he sings like an angel, plays any instrument you put into his hands and, he, and just a, a really, really lovely bloke. He's doing a lot over the last few years. He's had Asia back on the road a bit. Yeah. But he's been doing a lot of film soundtrack work and he's, he's great. And he did This Time Tomorrow with you. That's right, yeah. Was that a solo? That was, that was me after Moving Pictures, yeah. And uh, that sort of got... It it was released and it was doing really well the first week it was released and then they announced Superstar <laughs> and it just kind of <laughs> got lost. Corporate sabotage again. Yeah, I saw somebody played me the other day. He played me a film clip of me doing it on um, Hey Hey and I thought, that's not bad, you know, not bad at all. But them's the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Yes, as another Englishman once said. Yes, another Englishman. Did mm. you ever want to do anything else, Alex? No. No? I've never wanted to do anything else. Maybe act, but, um, you know, I, I took acting and stage classes from about the age of 12, and I love that. I just, uh, because I'm dyslexic and dysgraphic, um, I was never ended up being very good at school because I, I found the... the dyslexic, I know. What is dysgraphic? Well, that's, it's part of that whole spectrum. Okay. Dysgraphic is... It, I'm fine with reading. Hmm. I do have some problems sometimes, but fine with reading. But it's writing is a problem. Graphic. Okay. Yep. Right. And pattern recognition and things. You know, mm. like, you know, when people set up pool balls and there's a pattern, I could never do it because mm. I could never retain the pattern. I'm terrible at reading music because I can never remember the pattern of the sharps and flats. Mm. My mind just doesn't, you know, it'd be, take in that information. Uh, it took me till I was about 12 before I could read the time properly and things. I find it fascinating that someone who has had those problems with what what could have been huge literacy problems has thrived as a as a writer as I, a storyteller there've been several articles written that the professions of music and acting are full of dyslexic people because it gives you the opportunity to actually shine mm. in in something i know lots and lots of dyslexic people who are in the the, the music and um and acting world mm. and it's really kind of Cindy Lauper's dyslexic. She's got, she reads things with special tinted glasses, you know, because all different theories about this stuff. Mm. Yeah, she's a beautiful human. Actually. I could sit here and talk to you all day. You're such a good storyteller, well, but you've not? probably got things. Because well, Paul's going to come and kick us out of here at three o'clock well, and Paul some news and things like that. Yes. <laughs> so these days you, you live in London? I've, I've lived in London for the last 20 years. I work in special needs education. I use music to help children with profound and complex needs to communicate by um, musical interaction or intensive interaction. How did that come about? I had been at home for about four years just being house husband and bringing up children when they were small babies and my mm. wife was working. Good on you. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. Best time of life. The interesting thing about that, I think, is the period that saved my life because for the first time... In my sort of adult sentient life, it stopped me actually thinking about music and a music career and, oh, my God, I have to be somewhere by a certain time hmm. all the time. It was just being focused on the kids, you know. And then after that, I went off and I did a course. I found a course which was running in London to become a music facilitator, which is somebody who goes in and just helps music happen in school situations. And I got accidentally placed into this special needs school, which is the best thing that ever happened. And I was at that particular school for 11 years, working with um, a lot of children who were really against it. 
um, kids with terminal conditions, uh, people's life expectancy is not very good, their social conditions are pretty poor, they've got protection issues and, and stuff, on top of having absolutely major um, physiological and neurological impairments. So is this along the lines of the sort of work that the Nordoff Robbins yeah, Foundation it's, it's, it's does? Yeah, very, it's very similar, mm. very similar, except um, I'm not a therapist. Mm. I think the work I do is therapeutic. Excuse me, but a therapist has a psychology degree and they tend to work a lot towards um, clinical observation, diagnosis and outcome, mm. where I don't. My, my thing is music interaction is you go in and you with the child or some children and you just help them share an experience because a lot of times they don't get included in these experiences because people, A, think it's, you know, they're not going to like it or B, oh, they'll, they'll act up or something and C, they think because they're in a wheelchair and their arms are all twisted and stuff like that, they can't hold anything. What's the point of mm. giving them a tambourine if they can't hold it, you know? But when you break down those barriers and you get in and you, you enter this world which is of pure vibration, excuse me, listeners, you, know, you can mm. bang on somebody's work table on their, um, on their wheelchair and do that sort of thing and nobody's telling them to stop that, stop making that noise. You know, it's, this is what it's about, just doing that with your hands and making music mm. and helping them to become part of something. It's, it's when you consider that one of the greatest percussionists in the world... Evelyn Glennie, yeah. Evelyn Glennie is, is a deaf woman. She mm. performs barefoot mm. so that she, she can feel... feel. Yeah, that guy Beethoven didn't do too bad, did he? No. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, he's got, he's got a few problems. He manages. Yeah. So what age range are there there's kids that you're working with? Well, I work from kids from about two and a half, three, through to young adults around the age of about 19 or, or, or older. And you're loving it, aren't you? Oh, it's, it is, it's a gift. Yeah. A gift to me that I'm able to do the thing that I love most in this world, which is music, and give something back. Does your satisfaction from that come from, obviously it's, it's working with young people, mm. children and young mm. adults and helping them. Is part of that satisfaction also the fact that the very private Alex Smith from 30 years ago mm. isn't necessarily having to go and do it with 100,000 people singing back at him? <sighs> well, it's two sides for Because they don't, they don't know. They don't care. In England, it's great. That's one of the great things about being there. Is that that's really, every now and then somebody says, I Googled you last night. <laughs> I, what are you doing here? Mm. Oh, you should have seen your hair. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but, boy, um, it's, it's just really important. I, yeah, I find it so stimulating. You know, there are times at the end of the day when you've, or at the end of a session that's just gone so well, you, I've got almost the same feeling I would have after walking out of a really great gig, you know, mm. shaking your fist in the air and going, yes. So if we go back to the collapse of the Electra company, mm -hmm. If that hadn't happened, I don't know. And moving pictures had been bigger than Ben Hur yeah. in the US, and, and half the cast of Spartacus. Yeah. And yeah, what would your life be like now? Because you seem like a pretty well, happy man to me. I'm a very, very happy man. Um, but I think I wouldn't be here. I'd be dead in a hotel room somewhere. Mm. That's what would happen. Mm. Glad so, you're here. Yeah, I'm glad I'm here. Because you're fun to play with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put, drop in put, again put, next put time down. you come home to Newcastle. Yes. We'll oh, put well. it on your CV. Alex plays well with other others. children. Yes, plays well with others. <laughs> All right. What are we going to What are we going to wrap up with? I've moved everything. Stephen, what are we going to do? Never. Never. What do you think of never? Uh, it's it's a it's a two edged sword mm. because the whole footloose thing was tied in with the collapse of this company and lawsuits and we never got paid so never was featured on the footloose soundtrack for mm. those that aren't aware and yeah we sort of never seen a cent from it which is really galling so so you'd have twice as many chooks if you had exactly mm. yeah so there's that option or there's back to the streets which is always a moving pictures favorite what would you like alex i reckon back to the streets because that's what it was about back to the streets of newcastle yep which you are thank Will you, you come much. and visit us again if you come back to newcastle absolutely absolutely this is home, you know. This, even though I live in London, this is home, you know. Well, it's been great to catch up, mate. Beautiful, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Thank Alex. You.
Steve Pickett, thank you very much. A pleasure as always, Carol. What fun. News is on the way for you next here at 12.33. It's two to three. begin to tell you how much I've loved having that chat with Alex Smith. Now, he's at Lizotte's tonight. He's come home to Newcastle because he can. That is the original lineup of moving pictures. You can see them tonight, Lizotte's in Newcastle. There are, I believe, still some tickets available, Nick. He's nodding in the affirmative, but I suspect you might want to get onto that. What a fun show that is going to be. And what a wonderful conversation. Alex Smith, thank you very much for joining us here at 12.33. Enjoy your visit back home. Stephen Pickett, thank you very much. If you'd like some more information, call us 1300 33 12.33. News is on the way for you next.